I'm Robert Louis Abrahamson, and this is an Evening Under Lamplight podcast, back onto the mountain of purgatory, with Dante and Virgil and Canto 8. Canto 7 was an odd canto, in which Dante played very little part. He spoke nothing, and he was basically ignored by both Sordello and his leader Virgil. In Canto 8, however, he resumes his place as the pilgrim on this journey, observing and meeting people and, and learning more. But the canto begins not with resuming the storyline, but with another one of Dante's images taken from the ordinary life back in our world. There are two images of people's feelings at twilight. First, there's the sailor sitting at this twilight time, thinking longingly of the dear friends he's left behind on land. Then there's the traveller, alone on the road, hearing in the distance the sound of a bell, the bell calling for Compline, the night-time service, which is like the death knell of this day coming to an end. The traveller is perhaps a pilgrim just starting out on his journey, filled with love or devotion, and perhaps the image suggests that he's sorry he'll have to end that day's travel now, since he's eager to keep going to his destination. The images evoke a strong feeling of wistful longing, and besides all the other ways we might or might not apply the sailor and the traveller to Dante himself, I think the primary point is to show that Dante is falling into that sleepy inattention to what's going on around him. After all, he's exerted himself quite a lot and has had no sleep in the past 36 hours or more. Sordello is going on, I imagine, naming more of the figures down below, but Dante has stopped listening. And then his eye is caught by another figure down there who's never identified, but he seems to have some authority. He raises his hand for silence and attention, then brings his hands together in the prayer position, raising them up towards the sky, and turning his eyes to the east, the traditional direction where God arrives from. Then he begins to sing another Compline antiphon, Te Lucis Ante Terminum, known in English as the hymn Before the Ending of the Day. His singing is so wonderful that it pulls Dante out of himself. Technically, this is called an ecstasy. And it becomes even more entrancing when all the others join in, all looking up to the heavens while they sing. And when they finish singing, they just stand there, still looking up, in expectation. Of course, Dante too looks up to see what they're waiting for, and coming down from the sky are two angels, dressed in green, the color of hope. Their hair is golden, and their faces are so bright that Dante can't look at them. They're holding flaming swords, but swords with their sharp tip broken off, blunted blades. It, it, must have been, it must have been quite a sight, with their green wings gracefully moving, stirring their robes which are fluttering out behind them. They separate, and one angel alights near Dante, and the other over on the other side of the valley, standing guard. Sordello offers a bit of commentary. The angels come from Mary in heaven, sent down to protect everyone here from the serpent that's about to appear. I can't tell what Sordello's tone is. Does he show fear? Is he just objectively describing to the newcomers what will appear on the stage before them, perhaps trying to heighten the effect by frightening them? 
Whatever his tone, the result is that Dante does get a, does get afraid and comes closer to Virgil for protection. But once more, Sordello seems to be paying no attention to Dante or his fright and gets up, saying, maybe it's time now for us to go down into the valley and meet some of those great men who will be glad to see you. The you here is in the plural, so he's taking nominal notice of Dante now. So they start walking down into the valley, but not very far when Dante notices one of the people there staring at him, trying to recollect his face. It's getting dark, as we know, but not so dark that they can't see each other, and as they come closer, Dante recognizes that it's Nino, a prominent judge who had spent some time in Florence, during which time we suppose he and Dante became friendly. What a joy to see that Nino has not been damned. Dante, of course, is casting no shadow, so Nino can't tell that he's alive. So when did you die, he wants to know. How long ago was it? Oh, I just got here this morning, Dante replies. I came up from hell, actually. I'm, I'm still alive, you see, and coming on this journey to change my life so I can get to heaven. Nino falls back in amazement, and, and so too does Sordello, who's listening, and suddenly realizing that he's been in the presence of someone unique around here. Hey, Corrado, Nino calls out. Come over here and see what God has done with this man. And then to Dante, by that gratefulness you show to God for this special favor, which we can't understand and won't even try to understand, could you please, when you get back to Italy, go ask my daughter Giovanna to pray for me? She's so innocent, her prayers will be very acceptable. But I wouldn't bother asking her mother to pray for me. I think she's quite forgotten me now that she's gone and got married to someone else, and I can see that she's going to regret casting her lot with him. But such it is with women and love. If the object of love is no longer there, the love begins to fade. Surely Dante has taken all this in, but his eyes are now drawn up into the sky. Virgil addresses him, for the first time in how long, to, to ask what he's looking so intently at. Well, I'm looking at those three bright stars up there, lighting up the sky. Oh yes, those. These three stars are replacing those four bright stars we saw this morning, which are now low down, hidden on the other side of the mountain. And here Sordello interrupts, pulling him by the sleeve, I suppose, to point out what is going on over there. There's the enemy, he tells Virgil. And indeed, across the valley there appears a snake. It's not clear what size snake we are to visualize. Perhaps, Dante surmises, perhaps it's the same snake that tempted Eve, that is, in the Christian myth, Satan himself. It slithers through the grass, stopping now and then to turn its head backwards to preen itself. The angels are suddenly in motion, and as soon as the snake hears the beating of their wings, it turns back and disappears, and the angels return to where they had been positioned. Now Dante's aware that Curado, Nino's friend who had been called over, can't take his eyes off him, not even to watch that little drama just being performed. Please, for the sake of this heavenly journey you're on, he says to Dante, can you tell me what's the news in Valdimagra and thereabouts? When alive, I had an important role in that region. I was Curado Malaspina. No, not the main Curado, just his grandson. 
I, I cared too much about my own earthly things, and I'll have to be healed from all this up here. Well, I've never been to that region, Dante replies, but of course everyone knows your family, even those like me who've never visited your part of the country. And I can assure you that your family still remains great with no disgrace, despite all the disgraceful people everywhere else. Curado stops Dante, who's praising him and his family too much now, and he turns it around to apply to Dante himself, predicting that before seven years are up, unless God wills otherwise, Dante will have reason to know more strongly than just by hearsay how uncorrupted and generous his family remains. And on that note, the canto ends. It's particularly interesting to look at the shape of this canto. After that brief double image of the sailor and the traveller at dusk, we have the inspiring Te Lucis Ante Terminum and the arrival of the angels, with the expectation of something important about to happen. But instead, Sordello leads them now down into the valley where we forget about the angels as we watch the conversation with Nino. The conversation is interrupted by Dante's noticing the new set of stars in the sky, which leads into the second part of the pantomime, with the serpent appearing, not looking as threatening as we'd been led to expect, and quickly repelled simply by the sound of the angel's wings. And before we can register that this drama has finished, we shift to another one-on-one -on -one conversation, this time with Curado, as though that drama were just something we could witness and quickly move on from. The Te Lucis Ante Terminum, before the ending of the day, is, like the Salve Regina, an antiphon sung at Compline. We have now been invited to attend these souls' evening prayer service before they finish for the day. The Te Lucis Ante is more hopeful than the Salve Regina, and perhaps more specific. Instead of focusing on our sorry plight as exiled children of Eve, lamenting in this veil of tears, this hymn acknowledges that we are vulnerable to temptation, which we cannot combat without divine protection, and it affirms our confidence in this protection being available to us. Perhaps, as we often do in these podcasts, we can translate this church-based activity into our current psychological or spiritual life. Bear with me as I try to work this out. In these last moments of daylight, we can be aware that night is coming, in which no one can work, in which we lose consciousness, but our deeper unconscious selves are still, as always, at work, and it's here, in the darkness of the shadows, that the enemy, our old selfish habits, can attack us. We can, at these unconscious times, do nothing about it. The souls here cannot move forward when it's night, and we must ask for help to defend our sight from all ill dreams and fears and terrors of the night. Well, here we need an example. Suppose I know I have an angry temper that has often led me to lash out at others more than was appropriate and to spread pain even amongst those I care for. Okay, I see that this temper stems from the self-centered attempt to protect myself by hurting others before they hurt me, or if they've hurt me already, to hurt them back even worse. See, it's all about me. Becoming conscious of this, I repent. I turn away from this ego habit and determine to reform. But I still have to heal, 
which is like these souls needing to cleanse the stain upon their soul. When I'm conscious, that is, when I'm aware of my condition without judging it, then this can be a time of inner healing. But when my attention is elsewhere, and when I'm not conscious of my inner state, well, I can't heal. That's like these anti-purgatory souls unable to move in the night. But while I may not be attentive to the inner state, my subconscious self is still active and open to those habits. Okay, back to our example. I've repudiated my angry temper. When my friend says something stupid and I get all worked up in anger at his or her stupidity, I can be aware of this anger, stay calm, and the anger subsides, healed a little more. But suppose I am inattentive, watching a film on television, say, and the friend comes in and interrupts me. Well, I'm not paying attention to what's going on inside me, and, and there is the temptation deep within me that I can't defend against. I turn and say things to the friend that I know will hurt. And, and so here I have been, in the night time of my inattention, wandering aimlessly down that sloping path, just the thing that Sordello implied none of them wants to do. And this is just the situation that Te Lucis Ante Terminum is addressing, asking for help in the dying of the light when we may be attacked unawares. Oh, and whom are we asking help from? The hymn says we're asking it of our Creator, who is always kind and helpful. And, well, <laughs> all I can add is that if that doesn't work for us, if we cannot conceive of a benevolent divine providence, then, no judgment here, then we're still standing under the four cardinal virtues, temperance, justice, prudence, courage, good things, but the stars of faith, hope, and love have yet to arise for us. <laughs> well, that took a while to explain, but I think I opened it up as best I can, at least for now. I'll probably wake up tomorrow morning with the thought of a much better way of speaking about this. But the good thing about a podcast is that it doesn't have to be definitive, <laughs> just provocative, that is, thought-provoking, and heart-stirring too, I hope and, as Dante would wish, life-changing. Let's move on to Nino, who, like others we've already met in the Purgatorio, links us back to the Inferno. There was an indirect reference to him in the ditch of public corruption, but, more importantly, Nino was the grandson of Ugolino, that monster of stony hardness we met at the bottom of hell, chewing on the brains of the head locked in ice in front of him, Ugolino, who tells the story of his death in the tower, watching his sons die first. And it was this Ugolino who would have killed his grandson Nino had not Nino escaped and, and gone on to do his judicial work elsewhere. No wonder Dante is so pleased to see that Nino has not been damned, given all the evil influences surrounding his public and private life. Nino does not question how Dante got here. He accepts what we'd call the quia of Dante's presence and doesn't question the quid or how it was done. In asking for Dante to tell his daughter to pray for his soul, Nino returns us to this theme of prayers for the dead, which had been interrupted in the previous canto, which focused on Virgil and Sordello. But isn't there something a little unsettling when we hear Nino speak of his wife's fickle lack of concern for him because she has remarried? 
as though she was not allowed to provide for herself by marrying someone she thought could protect her? Love didn't really have much to do with marriage in those aristocratic circles. But what Nino is disappointed in and indignant about is not his wife, I think, so much as human nature, which is so unstable. In that diatribe in Canto VI, one of the things Dante was most angry about was the instability of Italian society, especially in Florence, where politics swung from one thing to the next. Here we see the same thing happening with individuals, moving away from one attachment when it's no longer in sight, and moving over to another. Nino can see that soon his wife will find herself in a much worse position. We don't have to go into details here, but she died destitute. What's important is that he speaks of this, I think, more in sorrow and regret, I think, than in spite or vindictiveness. His is a saved soul, after all. No more nastiness. It's a, it is a lovely moment when Sordello notices that Dante is a living man. Now he knows what he'd missed before. Does he feel sorry for having ignored Dante all this time? Apparently not, because he keeps his attention on Virgil, and he never speaks directly to Dante. I still can't make him out. That little moment when Dante and Virgil, now talking together again, discuss those three new stars in the sky, the three theological virtues, faith, hope, love, replacing the cardinal virtues represented by the four stars of the morning, well, it, it may seem like a minor event in this canto, but I think it's a major shift. We have now shifted into a whole new dimension, perhaps also represented by the way all these princes are looking up to the heavens. And as I said a few minutes ago, we have now come under the influence of these three stars, a new place in our healing process, a place where we must let go of our concerns to control the world, even the world inside us, and make room for some higher power to do its work in us. Well, now finally the pantomime, the snake slithering along, immediately alarmed by the angel's wings and gone in an instant. <laughs> what a build-up for so little. And the snake seems so harmless anyway. Is this showing us that Satan is just a joke? Is this just some kind of amusing entertainment before bedtime? A short fairy tale for the exiled children of Eve, reversing the temptation story of Genesis 3? Presumably this little drama occurs every evening as part of the Compline ritual. Do others pay it any attention? Is Sordello actually fearful when he speaks of the snake to Virgil, or is he just putting it on to impress Virgil and Dante, to get them ready for a scary stage show entertainment in this pleasant place? But we don't get any idea of how the princes respond to the drama. All we know is that Curado at least is not paying attention, but staring at Dante in wonder all this time. For this wouldn't really be significant unless all the others were wrapped in attention to that serpent play. I think that this drama is like any other part of a devotional service repeated every day, in which people are there with varying degrees of attention. But given the deep reverence we saw as the princes sang the Te Lucis Ante Terminum, there's no reason to think they don't have the same reverence for this ritual drama. Because what they're watching is actually a dramatization of the Te Lucis Ante Terminum, 
the hymn declaring the assurance of divine protection against attack from the enemy at night. The action seems so bland because there really is no great crisis. The divine aid is there at the ready. It reminds these princes that it's perfectly safe for them to let go of control. They don't have to handle the temptation, just be conscious of it and let it pass. Under the four cardinal virtues they would have taken action, but now the lesson is reinforced that they need not take action, just witness. We're running out of time and won't have much to say about Curado Malaspina, except that he shows that he's still very much attached to the world he left behind, concerned for how things are going, especially for his family. And he knows he's going to have to work on this when he gets up higher on the mountain. But we also learn that, like the souls in Inferno, these souls cannot see what's going on in the present moment in the living world, but they can perceive future events. We saw Nino able to see how his widow's second marriage will end up, and Curado now returns us to a major theme running through the whole Divine Comedy, Dante's exile from Florence. When he was writing these lines, Dante already knew that when in exile he would be seeking the hospitality of the Malaspina family, which he did, and so these lines are a tribute to his hosts. But given their place at the end of the canto, we can compare them to the end of Canto VI, which attacked the lack of virtue and generosity in Italy, and to the end of Canto VII, where we saw several rulers who, in contrast, have turned to virtue and generosity of some sort. And now we see one specific example of kindness and respect continuing from generation to generation. Well, it's night time, and in the next canto Dante will finally get some much-needed sleep, though accompanied by a meaningful dream. And we at last arrive at the main gate of purgatory. We'll meet up again next time for more.